This is week number 11 in our study of the book of Daniel, and I'm going to do a couple of things a little different than I normally do. Um, the first, I'm going to um, open up with this uh, article that I was sent this week. Um, this is a, a quote out of um, uh, a magazine called, or really it's a daily publication called The Independent. It's out of the UK. Um, it uh, covers world events, covers a lot of things. But this interesting quote in light of what we were studying in Chapter 2. Okay, um, this is uh, from today's paper, dated uh, March the 29th. And it's a story about what's going on in Yemen right now. And so this article reads, Unprecedented in modern Arab history, a sunny Muslim coalition of ten nations, including non-Arab Pakistan, has attacked another Arab nation. The Sunnis and the Shi'i of the Middle East are now at war with each other in Iraq, in Syria, and Yemen. Pakistan is a nuclear power, and the armies of Bahrain and uh, Gulf states include Pakistani soldiers, and Pakistanis were among the dead in the first great battle of their Iraqi troops in the 1991 Gulf War. But that first statement, unprecedented in modern Arab history, a Sunni, a Sunni Muslim coalition of ten nations. And you can go and you can actually, if you think about it, um, you can count those ten nations that are basically doing battle against what was called the ISIS, which is now called the Islamic State, and there are ten nations fighting against what you would call one nation of the Islamic State. And it goes through and it details all of these things. And this step that the Saudis took in bombing, really, um, people in Yemen is just escalated everything. And so now the um, it's always been true that the, the Shias and the Sunnis battled against one another. I mean, that's been going on for thousands of years, right? But what is unique now, is because this doesn't happen very often, is that you have Arab nations ganging up against other Arab nations, and they're, they're piling on, really. And so you've got the Shia, who would mainly be uh, Iran, um, supporting the Islamic State to take over, like, Syria and then Jordan, and then Iraq, and now Yemen. And so these guys are trying to build what they rightfully call the caliphate. The caliph, who's the guy who's over the caliphate, his name just happens to be uh, um, Baghdani. Just sort of fits there, doesn't it? And so um, this is, this. you know, I'm not trying to tell you that these are the ten nations. But isn't it just interesting of how all of a sudden, in the last two years, the Middle East has erupted and the Arabs are now fighting the Arabs. But that's not the ultimate end game, right? You know, the, the people in Saudi are not either Sunni nor Shia. They're Muslims for sure, but they, they follow after a name of a guy named Wahhabi who was in 1700 to 1750, in that time frame. And so his teachings, which are strict, 
according to the Quran, very strict, whereas women can't uh, sit beside men and women are treated as property as opposed to as equals. Whereas if you go to the Shia community or even in some of the Sunni communities, women and men are equal, but not in the Wahhabi. Uh, They are extreme. And so now you... But their, their theology aligns more with the Al-Qaeda or with the radical Islamis. And you don't, you don't ever hear that, right? This is Saudi Arabia. This is our friendly nation. These are the people that we support. These are the guys we sell arms to. Well, they are of the uh, same blend, or the same mindset as the Al-Qaeda are. And, you know, the Al-Qaeda, this is where... Uh, the Islamic State came from was the radical radicals of the um, is, of Al Qaeda began to do things that even Al Qaeda has now condemned, and so that's where the Islamic State came from. But those people, while it sounds like the Saudis are against them and fighting against them, not so much. Not so much. What they're trying to do is divert attention from the Iraq. U.S. deal about atomic power, right? Oh, sorry, Iran. And just trying to disengage that so that people won't focus on that. That's why, really, they've now gone into Yemen is to distract attention. And also, you know, um, they say they're trying to keep the Shia from being on one of their border states all the time, ignoring that Iraq is on their border and is really controlled by the Shia. And because the Shia are the are the ruling really power in Iraq these days, because of the void that the U.S. left, and so I mean it's all this chaos. And it's interesting that in today's paper in the U.K. we talk about a coalition of ten nations. So it's not so far far fetched that it's not you know um, it's not Rome and the European countries that we're talking about. Here now we've got 10 countries aligned together out of the Arab nations against other Arab nations who ultimately they would take over and then you would have a coalition of 10. So anyway, just an interesting article in today's paper. And you ought to go, uh, it's pretty interesting. It's actually the fifth part of five parts uh, of a five-part series. So you can go to the independent.com co.uk, I think it is, and find this article. It's one of the headlines. Um, you'll see a bunch of guys standing up with rifles in their hands. And uh, they, get, they have a link. You go to the world, then you go to the Middle East, and then you'll see this article. And it's the fifth of five. And if you're interested in those kind of things, just read back through all of this uh, information to see what's really going on in the UK, I mean, in the in the Middle East, it's it's very interesting. They have people on the ground who are interviewing people who are fleeing from the areas where the Islamic State has been established, and you have people who support the Islamic State and why they support it, which is bizarre, um, because if other people came into power, it would be even worse than it is with the Islamic State. So they believe. So it's it's really an interesting series of articles that are. Um, maybe the the leading into what Daniel interpreted so long ago. Not saying it's going to happen in the next 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, but it's just interesting of uh, what's going on there now. 
So, but we're in chapter 3, right? <laughs> Daniel chapter 3. And you remember last time we came to, uh, well, we finished chapter 2 with the, um, with the really the, the gifts and the promotion and all that Nebuchadnezzar did because he had promised that the guy who interpreted his dream, told him his dream and interpreted it, he would give him great gifts. And he did that to Daniel and even promoted Daniel to be the ruler of the province of Babylon. And so Daniel is like number two in command. If he's the ruler of Babylon, then the only guy higher than him would be Nebuchadnezzar. And then he also, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, at the request of Daniel, um, put the other three Jewish friends of Daniel into the administration of the province of Babylon. So you've got Daniel, who's the ruler, and he's the chief prefect of all the smart guys, supposedly. And then you've got his three friends who are administering the daily affairs of Baghdad, which is where, uh, of course, Nebuchadnezzar is, and it's where the whole nation is centered. So these guys are very powerful, very significant. And then we started chapter 3, where we see that... Um, Nebuchadnezzar builds this image that's uh, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, probably has a statue on top that he's trying, and he calls all of the rulers of all of the provinces to come together and to bow down to this um, image, to worship it, and that as music plays, then that is what they're to do, and if they don't do that, then they'll be thrown into a fiery furnace burned alive and so um, we talked about some of the motivations of why Nebuchadnezzar is doing this and you guys push back against me because I really believe that this is more of giving allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar and so today what I want to do before I read the scripture because we will go a little further but um, and I don't want to talk about this for a long time I, I timed I actually went online listened to my own lesson, uh, listen to you mainly, and what, where, where was the disconnect in what we were talking about? And I think part of the disconnect was I was talking about the motives of, um, of Nebuchadnezzar. You guys were talking about the perspective of all of those who he was commanding. But we'll, I want to read something to you today. This, I have two of these. I never do this, right? This is not what I do in my class, but I'm going to do it today. I have two... Um, paragraphs out of two different uh, common uh, commentators that I want to read to you to show you how not only were we somewhat discussing it last week, so did the commentaries. So the first one that I want to read to you is out of Nelson's Old Testament. Um, it's really a survey as opposed to a commentary. It's just paragraph form. And uh, this, is, uh, this was written about uh, 50 years ago, 55 years ago. And so here's a perspective that um, one of the reasons I was saying what I was saying last week, and then I'll read one for what you were saying. Okay. So this is out of Nelson's. It says, The likely background for the events of Chapter 3 was a coup attempt against Nebuchadnezzar that occurred in December 595, through January 594. This event was significant enough to be recorded in the Babylonian Chronicle, which is a document that kind of gives all the history of the nation of Babylon. 
After the coup attempt failed, Nebuchadnezzar presumably summoned all the provincial rulers and vassal kings back to Babylon for a loyalty oath. Those who had proven themselves loyal at the royal court in Babylon would have been exempt from the ceremony. Thus, Daniel did not have to appear at the gathering because he had been with Nebuchadnezzar at the royal court. Daniel's three friends, however, were summoned with the other officials because they had been serving as administrators in the province of Babylon. Perhaps reflecting on his earlier vision, Nebuchadnezzar constructed an image of gold that stood 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Nebuchadnezzar then summoned seven groups of government officials and ordered them to pledge loyalty to him by bowing down to the image. The penalty for disobedience was severe. All who refused would be tossed into the furnace. So that's a guy who somewhat substantiates, supports, has the same perspective that I do, that this was all about a loyalty oath to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I certainly understand the, uh, the viewpoint where this is really an idol worship. Uh, and we'll talk about that in today's lesson as we go a little bit further, because clearly that's the way the Jews saw it. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, you're absolutely right, that the Jews perceived this as putting a God before their one true God. And so here's a quote out of WordPress, um, another commentary a few years old, that um, speaks to this and has more of that flavor to it. So, um, again, out of WordPress, this, um, this document actually says it may not have been 595 when, you know, that's when the coup attempt was and that's when Nebuchadnezzar put down the coup attempt and this could have been right after that because that would make sense to bring everybody together to show him loyalty. That, the, the possibility also exists um, and this is what one of you said last week, that maybe it was in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar finally overtook um, Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. And that could make sense. So this goes both ways. We'll talk about that some more in today's lesson. But here's what WordPress writes. The image of gold was most likely Nebuchadnezzar's way to com- commemorate the success of Babylon in expanding its empire And since it was assumed that Babylon's gods were responsible for the success, the image was probably an acknowledgement of the superiority of the gods of Babylon as well as a tribute to the king. So that's more of the religious side. It keeps going. As a result of his military victories, Nebuchadnezzar became the ruler over a vast territory comprised of many diverse groups. He undoubtedly sought to minimize all possible sources of friction and division between them. He wanted his subjects to be, as much as possible, a cohesive empire. The worship ceremony was his attempt to bring together many separate groups and to forge a bond between the leaders of diverse elements of his vast empire. The enforced worship and the image was Nebuchadnezzar's way to compel his officials to display loyalty to him and the empire. Their failure to do so would represent the repudiation of the Babylonian gods and of him as the leader of the nation. These would be crimes tantamount to treason and therefore crimes worthy of death. Religion, king, and nation. Nebuchadnezzar wanted Babylonian principles about these things to be firmly implanted 
in the minds of all the people of the empire. So there you have that, what we were talking about, right? The mixing of the nation with the gods, with the leader of the nation. And so calling them all into submission, into worship, into respect, into honoring the gods who had given them all these victories. So that's a valid way to look at it also. And so both of these are are reasonable ways. Why Nebuchadnezzar did it, we'll never know unless his conversion was true. And then we can ask him, right? If his conversion wasn't true, we'll never know. And so, um, but both of those are valid ways to think about it. Um, And I appreciate you pushing back, okay? I never, never don't want you to speak your mind. Always want you to speak your mind. And we have commentators that, and you can read more, right? I read more, and I just gave you two. There are many more who go both ways, who say some of it was just um, Daniel calling people into loyalty for him. Sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, just people to be loyal to him. And some see it as a worship, uh, a true worship of the gods of Babylon. And I think either one of those would be the reason why the Jews would refuse to bow. But they'll get more specific, right? In the verses that we'll read today, they give reasons. Well, uh, yeah, I guess they do. Give reasons for why they do what they do. So anything you want to say there? Any any questions? Um, you see the different perspectives. I, I think we all understand them both. And which one you align with really doesn't make any difference in the real truth that we're trying to gain out of this passage, right? So, but it's always good to sharpen one another, to speak your mind, and to think about these things and to wrestle with them. And um, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's one of the reasons that we have this class like we do. We open it up, right? So today, we'll, just to get the, the table reset, we'll go back to uh, Daniel chapter 3 and begin reading in verse... Uh, I'm actually going to start in 6. I have written down 7, but I'll start in 6 and read down through like 18 or so. So Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, there the scripture reads, But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore at that time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These 
Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of all those instruments, all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace, a blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Okay, so here we have the, the confrontation highlighted, right? And I wanted to go back and, and read verse 6 where the penalty is given, right? The penalty is given that you will not in a while, you not be put in prison, but you will immediately be thrown into the furnace. Now, um, and we'll get down to the, the furnace here in a couple of minutes. Um, well, let me ask you this. What would, I mean, we're in desert territory, right? Why would they have a furnace that was burning? I mean, what's, what's the purpose of it? Could be smelting metals because this is a golden image, probably not solid gold, right? They would have had to melt gold to um, put a coat over this. All right, what else? All right, the Jews knew um, the ovens well, right? Because all their years in Egypt when they had made bricks, that's part of the process is to, to bake these in an oven to make them hardened or any types of pottery, that's what you would use it for. All right, there are a significant number of commentators who believe that this kiln, this um, furnace was built specifically for this ceremony. Now, why would, why would you think that this furnace would be specifically just for this ceremony? Yeah, this is kind of like your incentive, right? This is your motivation. I want you all to bow down and we'll cast you into a furnace. And all the while over here, here's this furnace with fire coming out of it, right? And if you don't, then we're going to put you into the furnace that we built for this purpose of burning you. Okay, now this, this sacrifice of people, this burning of people is not unique to Daniel. Matter of fact, um, it's written... Uh, over in, um, I think it's, get the right chapter here, and then I'll let you turn there with me. Uh, over in Jeremiah, chapter 29. And we'll see that this is not the first time that Nebuchadnezzar would have burned people alive. Okay? Jeremiah, preaching to the, um, the um, Jewish people who were at, in Babylon as exiles. Okay, that's who this is written to. So, Jeremiah 29, verse 20. 
Jeremiah 29, 20. You therefore hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is Jeremiah's good understanding of what had truly happened. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Kaliah, and concerning Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, Masaiah, who are prophesying to you falsely in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will slay them before your eyes. Well, how does he do that? Because of them, a curse will be used by all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon saying, may the Lord make you like Zedekiah and like Ahab whom the king of Babylon roasted in a fire because they acted foolishly in Israel and have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives and he lists all the things they did. So this is not unique to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and apparently was not uncommon for people to be burned alive, uh, for disobeying the king, for rebelling, for whatever. Um, so, and I, I guess it's just not the way we think about it, right? We think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into this furnace, and they're the only guys who that ever happened to, and it's just not true. This was, uh, um, a, you know, apparently fairly common way of doing away with those who opposed you was to burn them alive. So this is not unique to Daniel. Now, verse 7, all the time um, when the people heard the music, so he not only brought them all together. Now, who's there in this assembly? This is a dedication (laughs) ceremony. This is a commemoration of the image that he built. Who's there? Everybody that's anybody from where? From all the provinces, which means from where? Everywhere. All of the nations that they had conquered. And, you know, it, at least by this time, if it's 594 or so, they've conquered most of the world. They hadn't gotten all the way to the Mediterranean. But if it's 586, they got all the way to the Mediterranean at that point. And so there are lots of nations, people having come from a long distance to get here, and it's people of all kinds of languages from all these nations. Some of them are kings who uh, Nebuchadnezzar allowed to stay as kings, but they, he only allowed them to stay so they could give him tribute. Or some of them are rulers that he put in place. We saw that in Jerusalem, right? He removed the king and put another king who rebelled against him, and so he killed him. And so... There are all kinds of different peoples who are there. Okay, this is very important a little bit later on. All right, and so these people, he brings them all together. He tells them what the command is, or at least the herald does. And then they perform the act, right? The music begins to play, and they all are supposed to bow down to this image. And so that's what takes place in verse 7. And then when verse 8 gets there, and this is where we left off last week, for, the, for this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. At what time? So when is this? They're all still there. They haven't gone anywhere. 
Nebuchadnezzar's still there. They're all still there. They've all bowed down. And these three are standing. And so it's obvious, right? In plain sight of everybody that they have not bowed down. Now, maybe Nebuchadnezzar didn't see them because he bowed down. And these guys were peeking. You know, who did see them? I don't know. But this is like defiance from the very beginning. They never did bow down. This isn't later, weeks later, and when they're called to bow down again. This is during the dedication ceremony. So this is as in your face as it can get. Okay, so this is immediately. Because that's what he says, at this time. So it's immediately during the ceremony is when they don't bow down. And so you notice that, all right, so... Uh, For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the the Jews. And then they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. What's all that? What's that all about? This is the same thing like the wise men said, right? I mean, you remember back when he said, uh, you tell me my dream and tell me its interpretation or I'll tear you from limb to limb, right? And I'll also make rubbish heaps of your houses. I'll kill all your family. And then they come and they say, go king, live forever. You know, it's that, that sucking up to the king. Is what it is. And by the way, as we saw back with the wise men, Nebuchadnezzar could do whatever he wanted to. So you should say things like this to the king, right? Because if you don't, he'll just throw you into the furnace. He'll be done with you. So this is a proper way to address the ruler of the world, of all the, you know, I mean, he's the ruler of everything. It is. It is. They're, they're looking out for themselves all the time. Now, for the next two verses, they tell the king what his decree was, right? I mean, almost word for word, they repeat the decree to the king. Okay, now why do they do that? Why, 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 I mean, it's just been heralded, right? They all bowed down. The three didn't bow down. And so now they go and they go over to Nebuchadnezzar and say, King, live forever. And then they repeat what has just been said. Why do they do this? Making their case word against him. I mean, like making sure that he enforces what he said. Could be that, making sure that he enforces what the herald said. What else? Right, right. 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 Notice who speaks against them. Who is it? Chaldeans. Where's that? That's right there, right? These aren't people from far away. These aren't people from distant nations who've come to this ceremony. These are people who live there. These are the guys who train these three, right? And so these are locals. And so they maybe know Nebuchadnezzar better than the other guys. So they go immediately to Nebuchadnezzar. They, they repeat what he said to make sure they heard it right. Okay, because certainly they don't want to get Nebuchadnezzar to do something that they misunderstood. So it's both ways. They want Nebuchadnezzar, you know, the herald said it. And now they say it to Nebuchadnezzar to make sure the herald got it right and that they heard it right. So they're just confirming, oh, this is 
if you don't do this, then there's a penalty of death, right? And of course, Nebuchadnezzar um, would not push back against them because they did hear it right, and they do say it right. All right, so their accusation um, then comes in verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. That gets right to it, right? I mean, we know who that is. And, and, and why did Nebuchadnezzar appoint them? Because Daniel asked. So here's Daniel getting his friends in hot water, right? I mean, if they wouldn't have been in the administration, they wouldn't have been invited. But because they were in the administration, they weren't there. And, and why isn't Daniel there? Right, which kind of speaks to what I was thinking, okay, that you push back against me on, is that maybe they we're trying to get people to show their loyalty to me, right? But that would involve worship of the gods also because Nebuchadnezzar believed that his success was from the gods because the gods were better than other people's gods. I don't think so. I don't, he asked me, did Nebuchadnezzar consider himself to be a god? I don't see that anywhere in Nebuchadnezzar's language. Nothing that he says indicates that he thinks he's a god. Go ahead. Yeah. Worship. But Baal worshipped the way that they honored Baal was to use immolation, burning, right. death. And they didn't have anyone specifically uh, they were towards Baal by their estimation. They would grab local human infants, particularly as a pool in their slave. Right. And then they would use those little children which, which is one of the reasons that God destroyed, allowed the Babylonians to overrun Judah, you remember, because the king allowed children to be sacrificed and probably in Baal worship. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is, and that's why the furnace is there. This is all about honoring the gods. Um, one more thing. Uh, Babylon was, I think we talked about this the other day, the next week for all of these people who traveled to the eastern silk trade all the way to mm-hmm. the Grecian Empire and then out to Egypt. So it was right there at, at the hub of the year. Right. Sure, sure. Yeah. It's true. True. And so this this is public, very public. Everybody will know about this. Okay? What size of a ceremony is Size? How many people are there? <laughs> I don't think they played football, but uh, they didn't have rubber, right? <laughs> um, you know, we don't know. I mean, the, the nation, the empire is very large, and there are many provinces. And so there's probably many rulers and, and those in administration and all from every one of those provinces. So I think you've got a sizable crowd. You know, is it is it 10,000? Is it 100,000? I don't know, but it's not 50. You know, it's not 100 or 200 people. It's thousands. So they all gather, they mm-hmm. all bow down, and the Chaldeans are like, hey, this guy's standing up. Yeah, oh and yeah. So they make their way up to the front where I assume the 
Yeah. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar probably standing in front of the image, right? Right. Uh, go ahead, David. <laughs> yeah, or he had already shown his, his loyalty because he stood beside Nebuchadnezzar as the people tried to overrun him and help him put down the, the coup. So, yes. Yeah. Well, I bet there, there's so much going on in here. Mm-hmm. Nebuchadnezzar's, you know, ego. Yes. I mean, he was made. He was told very clearly, "You, O king, are the king of kings, that God of heaven right. has granted your sovereignty, power, and strength, and honor." So, if you believe that, and he did, he had an amazing uh, sense of his power. Mm-hmm. That the God of heaven. So. Yeah, I'm not so sure he believes it was given to him yeah. by God. Yeah, it, well, yeah, because we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. Go ahead, Bob. Oh, well, these guys go to Nebuchadnezzar, so I assume he's there. Right. Well, they're, and they're also in the plains of Dura. Right, which wouldn't be a long way, but it's not right there where his palace was. So, um, you know, it, I, I look at it this way. If I call all of the leaders of all of my provinces to come together and give them a command, I'm probably going to be there. Um, you know, um, and so I think he is there, and I think they immediately go to him and, and tell him that these three guys did not bow down. Now, um, Notice the accusation. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So it's not just Nebuchadnezzar that's the focus here. And this is what you were saying, right? It's also the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what this image represents is the the superiority of the gods. And so you should bow down and worship this to acknowledge that those gods have established Nebuchadnezzar and to give respect to Nebuchadnezzar. And that's why all of you have been conquered and you're now coming to this ceremony. It's because of the superiority of these gods. So the, the accusation is about all those things. And they give us some hint as to why, uh, at least in their minds, they're all there, right? Is to serve the gods and to honor Nebuchadnezzar. And the image is just a representation of those things. Because think about this. They already had many gods. So Nebuchadnezzar wasn't trying to lead them into idol worship. They were already deep in idol worship. This is just another one. So he didn't have to do anything to get them to acknowledge that there are many gods. But he specifically wanted them to acknowledge the gods of Babylon, of the Chaldeans. Go ahead. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely think that that's part of their motive. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's clearly, I mean, these are the guys who, some of them could have been in the school with these four who excelled beyond all of them. So, yeah, I think that's an element of it, is that they're, they're clearly jealous of what's going on here. Okay, so we, we keep on moving through this. Um, and so they make the accusation. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. So he's uh, a little upset, right? But so he believes the report. He at least uh, wants to verify the report. And to, to his credit, the next thing he does is, seems to me to be somewhat out of character, especially if he's angry and enraged about it. Because look at what he does. This is, this is pretty decent. He goes and he says, Then Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? So what's he doing? Yeah, he, he's not just going to take these guys and cast them into the furnace on the words of these other guys. Right? Go ahead. I think it makes sense that he's raised, at least from a fellow human perspective. Okay, here he has just had this dream interpreted by Daniel. Trusted Daniel, and Daniel, on Daniel's word, can you trust more than any of these other guys? Because these, these three guys, these are awesome. And he put them in place. So he did trust in Daniel, and then he probably feels extremely... Right, I think but so. Then giving him the benefit of the doubt, he asked the question, is it really true? And then he might see their answer. And, and speculating, how long has it been since um, the interpretation of the dream? If it's 95, it's been seven years, right? If it's 86, which it could be, it's been 16 years. So this is not immediately after. It could be. I mean, all of that could be wrong, and it could be the next month, right? We don't know the exact time, but it kind of makes sense. And I'll show you in a minute why it makes sense that it might be 86 and not 95. Um, you've got to think through these things, right? I mean, we have the history. The history is, is accurate. We have the, the documents that we know what happened in Babylon. I mean, a good bit of what happened in Babylon, not everything. And that's what I'm saying. It's, it, they could have been his close aides for seven years. I mean, uh, you know, helping him, administering everything in Babylon. Everything's running really great. And so these are, these are guys who are not unknown to him. Matter of fact, remember, he hand-selected these guys as being ten times better than all the others that he interviewed. All four of them, he says, were ten times better than all the others. And so these guys are, are unique. They stand out. 
And when Daniel said, can we promote these three guys? It was like, well, that makes sense. These are the best. And so he put them into administration. So they've been working hand in hand with Nebuchadnezzar for a long time, at least probably seven years. Good. They served the God who interpreted the dream. And that would have, there was no flack there, right? No, no problem with any of that because it didn't seem to oppose them, right? And, and, and in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, this was just another God, right? It wasn't the God, even though Daniel called him the God of heaven. Uh, that, to Nebuchadnezzar, it's just another God. He just happens to be pretty good, right? <laughs> We'll, we'll talk about that in a second when he gets down and, and says what he says. Um, so he asked them a question, which is reasonable. He wants to verify that they actually did this, that they don't serve the gods um, that he um, commanded them to. And then verse 15, Now if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of all the instruments and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. So what's he giving you? There's a chance, right? Pretty decent of him. Is this true about you? But uh, maybe you didn't hear it all right. When you hear the music, just bow down to the image, right? Although he's angry. Probably didn't say it quite that nice. Go ahead. <laughs> someone asked me that earlier today. <laughs> Actually, someone who's just been reading Esther Ask me that same question. And yes, I would say there are similarities, certainly. Right. Or weren't treated as privileged, at least, right? So yeah, and, and, and we talked about it. There's similarities also here with Joseph, right? And what happened in Egypt. So there, there, yes, this is not un, totally unique. But what this situation is definitely unique. All right, so he gives them the second chance. He even says, I'll, I'll have the music play for you again. And so you can do this again. And of course, you know, what all the other people would do if they heard that music is bow down, right? <laughs> it's like musical chairs. So, but if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? <laughs> All right, now, if it's immediately after the interpretation of the dream, he really does have a short memory. Turn back to chapter 2 and verse 46, really 47. This is after Daniel interprets the dream. Then king, the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. God of gods and Lord of me as the king. Okay, what changed? Now, here's Nebuchadnezzar saying, and there's not a God that exists who could deliver you out of my hand. Go ahead. If it hasn't been about idolatry at this point, Nebuchadnezzar just... Yeah, absolutely. What God is there that can deliver you out of my hand. What? Why, why the change? Well, that's part of it, but I mean, this could have been, could have been seven years, 16 years later. Okay? 
think, I mean, each of those gods that they worship usually had a certain domain or power or whatever. That, you know, like this is the god of agriculture, this is the god of, you know, whatever. Right. Maybe he thought that Daniel's god was maybe just the mere revealer of mysteries and, you know, that sort of thing. But it had anything to do with him at this point. Or he just expressed the truth and went right there. Well, or it may make perfect sense. Think about this. What happened in 586 B.C.? No, 595 for the coup attempt. 586? The final destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, right? The Babylonians pushed all the way to the Mediterranean and took all of that territory. All right, now, if you're Nebuchadnezzar and you just destroyed the temple of the God of the Jews, then what do you think? Not necessarily I'm stronger, but what? My gods just defeated the God of the Jews. So even that God can't overcome my gods. So who can deliver you? Because we just crushed his temple. Go ahead. Uh, we get a little bit into his head. Yeah. Four, uh, chapter 4, verse 32. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Right. It's all about him. It's all about him. And, and, and he understand. He would acknowledge that the gods helped him, but his gods just destroyed the God of the Jews. So now that God who gave him his interpretation of his dream, not so much, because my gods are superior. Go ahead. For a king that's so um, wrapped up in his own ego, yeah. to have trusted these men for seven years, mm-hmm. find out that perhaps his judgment wasn't down to the not only uh, is an offense, but it undermines his own ego. Mm-hmm. And perhaps he's chosen incorrectly. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and, and this could be, if it is 586, um, it's 16 years that they've been ruling over Babylon. And in my mind, that probably makes more sense because that's why Nebuchadnezzar at this point says this to them. But, I mean, previously he thought that um, the true God was God of gods. He's above everybody. Even my gods of Babylon because my wise men couldn't interpret this, but Daniel did. So this is the God of gods, the Lord of kings. And now, not so much. Go ahead. I was saying things to be interpreting who God is in light of his immediate Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which, by the way, not only do we all do, but unbelievers clearly do that. What happens when um, devastation hits? People cry out to God, right? Right? Yeah, I mean, and this is what Daniel's theme is, right? I mean, it's all about showing, or at least the first part, showing Nebuchadnezzar that the one true God is in control of everything. And there's nothing that is outside of his control. That's what it's showing. It's showing the sovereignty of our God 
over his creation to do whatever he well pleases. I mean, after all, he's already um, performed the miracle of the four Jews looking better than all the others, giving them intellect and success in school beyond all the others, getting them, uh, giving Daniel the ability to see and interpret the dream, getting Daniel promoted to the second in the land, and these guys promoted to the leaders of the province of Babylon. I mean, God's just orchestrating this exactly like he wanted to. Now, we'll keep going. And then I got a couple of things. So, so in 16 through 18, and again, this is narrative, so we can move pretty quick, but I want to look at their response. They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. What do they mean? We, we don't need to answer you. You're asking us to bow down to this image. We don't even need to answer you. Why? Surely they need to answer the king. Well, look at what they say in 18. We don't need to answer you because, what? Yeah, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image. Not going to happen. It's just their minds are solidified. They don't have to think about it. They don't have to go anywhere. Now, for them to bow down at this point would mean what for them? For them. Yeah, this would be against what in their, that they would have been taught as young boys. Well, it would be against the first three of the Ten Commandments, right? Right? At least against those three. And then also, the Jews every day would repeat the Shema, right? Right? You know, the, I mean, this would be part of their upbringing um, that they would repeat and recite, um, you know, every day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. I mean, that would have been their mantra. That's what they would have learned as young kids. That's what they would say all the time. And so this clearly is showing if they bow down to the, and acknowledge all these other gods, then that would be against what, even as young boys, they would have been taught. They would have been reciting that with all of Israel, all of the, uh, those in Judah. Yeah, yeah. They definitely perceive it as more than just, yeah, and you're right. I mean, they have been loyal to Nebuchadnezzar for maybe seven years or maybe even 16 years, serving well in the kingdom of Babylon. Daniel had been loyal to Nebuchadnezzar, helping him to overcome a coup. I mean, so these guys weren't like they were against Nebuchadnezzar. They just weren't willing. This is the point where your government orders you to sin, and you have to say, do we serve men or do we serve God? Right? That's the point they're at. Go ahead. They made this point, too. Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar changes to being about God and the worship of God, but when you get down to verse 28, they throw that there. Right. Nebuchadnezzar himself realizes the reason they won't fall down and worship has nothing to do with the reason that has everything to do with the worship of God. Yeah. He does. And it has nothing to do with their service to him. Yeah, at this point where we're at, he doesn't have that, right? You don't understand. This is, this is um, um, what would you call it? I don't want to say defiling, but this is, uh, you know, um, not honoring directly to Nebuchadnezzar. That's what he sees this as being. 
they're defined they're uh, yeah i mean they, they are um, not going to do what he tells them to do now verse 17 is remarkable what they say in verse 17 if it be so our god whom is able to deliver us out of your hands now they, they use his words right because nebuchadnezzar says um who can deliver you out of my hands? And they say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand. So they first acknowledge that he's able to and then they say what? He will will deliver us out of your hand. So it shows their confidence in their God but then they say, just in case he doesn't, then that's okay too. Right? Right? I mean, so these guys in the face of death are unyielding and have remarkable faith in God. Not just that he can deliver them. We all know that, right? God can do whatever he well pleases, but that he will deliver them out of Nebuchadnezzar's hands, out of the furnace of fire. Now, clearly they have no idea how that's going to happen, right? They, They don't know, but we know the rest of the story and clearly God doesn't prevent them from going into the fire. Right? He allows them to endure the punishment that Nebuchadnezzar prescribed for them. Now, this is a final thought. After this event is over, where are these people all going to go? Back to their places they came from, right? And what are they going to be talking about? about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Now, who other than God could orchestrate the mind of the king to do evil things that bring glory to God in all the world, not just in Babylon, but throughout all the nations? So this is God's purpose in what's going on here, as he wants to show everybody everywhere that he is sovereign and in control, and he can do whatever he well pleases. This should say that not only to them, but to us. In a book about an amazing man, Daniel, whose name is not even mentioned. Right, not even in this passage, right? Out of the scene, God still uses the evil king and those who are faithful to him to promote his name throughout the whole world at this time. I mean, that's all these people are going to talk about, right? We heated this furnace seven times hotter, and that's just a figure of speech, but seven times hotter than it usually is, threw him in. The guys who threw him in died because it was so hot near the furnace and these guys walk around in the furnace and their ropes are undone and they still have their clothes on. You know, I mean, astounding. But this is what this passage is all about. It's God promoting his name throughout the whole world to show that he is indeed sovereign. Shows that to Nebuchadnezzar, shows it to all the rulers, but also shows it to all the nations. Because these guys go back and this is what they're going to talk about. Not so much about the 90 by 9 image. That's going to be out of their mind. It's going to be all about the guys who went into the furnace and didn't get burned. 